Well, good morning and welcome to Solid Rock. It's good to have you all today. Today we are continuing to read a portion of the story about David's reign over Israel. And the portion of the story that we reach today, we see that it takes a dark and troubling turn as we watch a terrible transformation take place in David's personal life. I mean, this is a man who came from nowhere. He had nothing to his name. At the beginning of the story, he is humble and meek. He is a good friend to others. He trusts that God is the one who will lead him and raise him up to a place of authority. And with characteristics like that, he truly is poised for God-honoring leadership over the people. But how quickly we see some of those positive characteristics fade as soon as he is given a little bit of power. Those virtues are replaced with things like ego, lust, and violence. This is one of the darker parts of our sacred scriptures. You might be surprised to discover that there are some terrible things that take place at the hands of the people of God. And personally, I don't think that that is something that we should shy away from, even though it's uncomfortable to read about some of those things. It is uncomfortable, sure, but I think it's also quite necessary. And if we take that challenge seriously, I think it could be helpful as we attempt to avoid some of those same pitfalls that have plagued the human heart and mind since the beginning. So when we read narrative portions of Scripture, there are a few things that we need to keep in mind. First of all is the fact that the stories we are reading may not be normative or prescriptive at all. Do do you know what I mean by that? That they may not be explicitly telling us how to live or how not to live, but rather they often are descriptive. They're saying this is what happened on this occasion and This is how the people responded to these situations. And perhaps at times, this is how God saw the situation. And then we are left in the interpretive task to draw some of our own conclusions in light of what we now know about Jesus Christ. And so even when some of the stories that we read are descriptive and not normative, we can still find points of application in the middle of those stories. Because when we identify noble and Christ-like behavior, we can enthusiastically declare, yes, let's go and do likewise. Conversely, when we see evil or sinful behavior, when we find actions and attitudes that don't at all resemble Jesus Christ, we then accept the invitation into a place of self-examination. And we pray, God, show me any areas or ways in which these attitudes and perspectives or these actions have crept into my life. And over the next couple of weeks, we are going to have ample opportunity to do just that. We pray, God, search us. Convict us of our sin, forgive us of that sin, and lead us into your life. And the example the Holy Spirit uses in the story we read today is King David, who is described at times as being a man after God's own heart, but 
who wasn't always in step with God's heart. And so this is where we are in the David saga. David has established his reign over the people of Israel. And near the beginning of his reign, a group of people known as the Ammonites had become quite a persistent challenge for David and Israel. In chapter 10, we see that they create an alliance with the Assyrians. They essentially hire the the, the Syrians to help defeat the Israelites. But we see that Israel is able to fairly easily and pretty quickly neutralize the threat of the Syrians. But by chapter 11, the Ammonites still remain as a serious threat. And in the middle of that conflict, we read one of the most infamous stories about David, one of his many regrettable and dark moments. We read this story beginning in chapter 11, verse 1, where it says this, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. David remained at Jerusalem. So right away, the setting of the story gives us a clue that something is amiss. Something here is not right. The author wants the reader to realize that something terrible lies just beyond the corner, so we better buckle up because it's going to be a wild ride. We're told that it's spring, and... This is typically when kings go out to battle, and Israel is currently embroiled in an ongoing conflict with the Ammonites. And so David sends Joab and their forces to continue destroying this foreign army. But at the end of the the verse we've just read, rather unexpectedly, but quite suggestively, we hear that David did not go out to battle. He sends the military out, but he remains in Jerusalem. Now, we might be thinking when we read this, okay, what's the big deal? Kings or, in our context, presidents or even military generals or people with high positions of national leadership, they typically aren't out on the front lines engaging in battle, right? Their job is not to fight, but to direct their forces, because leaders are invaluable assets, and to risk their lives out on the battlefield is not ideal, especially in modern warfare when it's not at all necessary. But this was a different time, and often the leader was maybe not out on the front lines, but was probably much closer and much more personally involved in the action. Perhaps you remember that story that's told back in 1 Samuel when Israel first begins demanding that God give them a king like the surrounding nations had. And what is the reasoning behind those demands? They say, we want a king because we want somebody who can judge us and we want somebody who will go out before us and fight our battles. Now, this short statement at the end of verse 1 here isn't saying whether David should or should not have been out with his troops, but I think it does at least reveal that things were beginning to settle into a place of ease for David and the kingdom. 
David is no longer the one who has to go out and fight their battles for them. I mean, the Syrians had been conquered, and David trusts that Joab will finish the job with the Ammonites. Meanwhile, he could spend his time disengaged from the physical battle and tend to matters that were maybe more important to him at this point. And I think it's possible that the narrator may be hinting at the fact that while David is disengaged from the actual physical battle, he is about to begin a battle for his soul. We know the rest of the story, so we know that it is a battle that he loses. David remains at home in Jerusalem, increasingly free of anxiety and trouble, and it maybe is in that place when his guard is let down a little bit, that the evil within him begins to rise to the surface. Now, I think there's potentially a very simple yet profound lesson that we could learn here from the beginning. And that is, when we become too comfortable, I think we often become more susceptible to our own vices. Those temptations that we already have when we become comfortable, they often rise to the surface. And I think Christian ethics, to some degree, is simply the process of trying to stay awake. Trying to keep our eyes open and be aware of our own weaknesses and temptations enough to be able to resist those impulses and allow Christ to lead us deeper into his life every day. So David here has time on his hands, he's relatively carefree, and perhaps a bit bored, taking a nap on the couch. We return in verse 2, where it says, It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. So David is living in the lap of luxury. He gets up from a nap and takes a walk out on the roof of his house, part of the house which was used a lot more in that time and place than we are probably accustomed to. Now, maybe he goes out there because he just wants to clear his head, or perhaps he's going out to take a walk and contemplate various issues at work within the kingdom. But either way, out on his roof, His lustful eyes see somebody who is visually appealing. He sees a woman down below from his elevated palace, a woman who is presumably bathing as she is in the process of the ceremonial purification which was required by Jewish law following a woman's menstrual cycle. Now, one thing I think the story makes clear at this point is that David has one thing and one thing only on his mind. He sees that this woman is very beautiful. The word translated as beautiful here relates specifically, if not exclusively, to physical beauty, which seems to be the only thing David is interested in. He now knows exactly what he wants, and He's the king, for goodness sake, so he, of all people, should be able to go out and get what he wants. Verse 3, and David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? 
So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. So David begins to ask around, well, who is this woman that I see bathing below this beautiful woman? Well, the the response he gets is that's Bathsheba, but her name isn't the only descriptor used to explain who she is. The response he gets is that is Bathsheba and she is somebody's daughter. And she's somebody's wife. And I I think one of the implications there is, David, I know what you're up to, but back off. This is inappropriate. She's a married woman. But not even that information can stop David in his powerful pursuit of his prey. At this point, we see the pace of the story pick up even more. The action is decisive. We read, he sends He takes, she arrives, he lays. This action-packed, quickly-paced movement reminds us that the sexual activity, the sexual encounter was the only thing on David's mind. He doesn't seem to be interested at all in conversation or interested in emotional connection. He gets what he wants and sends her on her way. Now, maybe we're surprised to discover that some of those same attitudes that underlie this episode are still at work today, right? And I think we see that clearly in something like the priority of physical beauty, especially among those who are in the world of dating, that the priority of physical beauty above all other personal features. I mean, personality, common interest, emotional connection, or for us, Christ-likeness, those things don't matter all that much in a hookup culture like the one we find ourselves in. I mean, you can get applications on your phone if you are in the dating game that filter prospective dating options based purely on the physical or sexual appeal of that individual. And I think this, this is an, an explicit lesson we learn from this story, but I do think we are confronted here with something in the human heart and maybe a subsequent reminder that physical beauty simply does not last. It just doesn't. We, we all eventually get old and those attractive physical features that maybe we once had or in, in some cases, like my own, maybe, maybe we never had, but we remind ourselves that those features don't last, but there is a beauty that doesn't fade. And that is the character of Christ in us, which only increases if we can allow it to. Now, here's a question that some will ask. Some have asked this throughout the past, and some maybe are thinking of it today. And that is, well, was Bathsheba complicit in any of this? Is it possible that Bathsheba was intentionally putting herself in a position to be seen by David because she desired that physical interaction as much as he did? Who knows? I don't know. We aren't given any of that information, but 
I do think it's telling that the author of the story focuses exclusively on David's guilt, on his sin, on his evil heart, which I think makes sense because David is in the, the one with, in a position of power, so he can get what he wants, and here he takes it. And I think we also have to recognize the fact that perhaps it is even against Bathsheba's will, even if she consents to the activity, because did she really have a choice? I mean, she was summoned by the king. What is she supposed to do in that situation? And once again, we realize that the more things change, the more they stay the same. We are still dealing with these types of scenarios in our culture today. I mean, we're living in the middle of the Me Too moment, which in some circles, like the one many of us are are a part of, has also been dubbed the Church Too moment. And, And as Christians, we must be better in dealing with these issues, issues of sexual harassment and abuse, we we must be better. We we must push back against toxic masculinity when it rears its ugly head, toxic masculinity that has at times enabled and made an environment that is conducive to these sorts of things. We, We must push back against toxic visions of human sexuality. So when we find ourselves, if we find ourselves in positions of influence or power, we must be vigilant in guarding our hearts from being overcome by evil and using those positions or using our influence to satisfy our lusts. And then finally, we must be better in dealing with sexual abuse and harassment, which probably begins with the simple step of believing victims when they have courage to tell their story. Furthermore, we are proactive, or we need to be proactive about creating safe environments that are free of harassment. Creating safe environments in the church we are a part of, in our own homes and in our places of employment. And we work to create safe environments because as followers of Jesus, we believe in the dignity of every human being and we believe that a part of our call is to do what we can to protect that dignity. Now, even if Bathsheba was complicit in this encounter, even minimally, which is not an argument that I'm making here, but... Even if that's the case, I still think the story has another implication related to our sexual ethics in this present cultural moment. Because we live in a day and age when sexual ethics, if there is such a thing, is reduced to consent, right? So if two consenting adults are participating in a sexual activity, then there's really nothing wrong with that activity, regardless of who else might be impacted by those decisions or those actions. And I think a Christian view of the world has a much more robust vision of sexual ethics than mere consent. Because even though our sexuality is a gift, like anything else in this life, it can be embraced or used in a way that harms us and harms others. 
and consent doesn't necessarily eliminate that potential for harm. Because as soon as consent becomes the only criteria for our sexual activity, in that moment, coercion or power dynamics can become a tool. Because as long as I can get a potential partner to consent, even if they consent reluctantly or even if they consent outside of their marriage or if I can get them to consent out of a fear of the consequences that they may have or because they think it will help their career if they accept the advances and just go along with it, if I can just get consent, then the activity is fine. And so power dynamics in a relationship, even a relationship that is strictly a professional one, Power dynamics can be used to persuade consent, which then passes the cultural guideline for acceptable or ethical behavior. But as Christians, we are guided by a different vision of our sexuality. And to be fair, we probably all have our own issues related to our sexuality, our own temptations that we have to guard against. And maybe that is lust or an unrestrained desire for sexual fulfillment, or maybe it's using sex to manipulate others, or maybe it's hoping to find love and personal fulfillment through sexual activity, or maybe it's infidelity, or even infidelity in our hearts. The simple act of lusting for somebody who isn't our spouse, which Jesus in the gospel says is on par with adultery. It doesn't have the the exact same impact. Of course, it, it doesn't have all of the fallout that you might have from a very public act of adultery. And yet Jesus says it destroys your soul just the same. And what's wild is that all of those activities, all of those attitudes can take place in a consensual relationship. And yet I still think they fall short of the Christian vision of healthy sexuality. Well, well, let's continue. Are are you ready to move on? I I know I am. Okay. Let's go. Verse 5. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him, or asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. So David's in panic mode. He's scheming to figure out how he can cover up this offense and save his reputation and the reputation of the kingdom. He tries desperately to control the situation. All right, Bathsheba's pregnant, and admittedly, this is going to look bad, right? Because her husband, Uriah, is off fighting my war, and she becomes pregnant. People are going to know that something unscrupulous has taken place, I have an idea. I'm just going to bring Uriah back from the war, and I'm going to make it appear as though I'm just interested in 
getting an update on the battlefield progress, and then I'm going to instruct him that he can sort of take this leave of absence and go spend the evening with his wife, and after that, everyone will assume, oh, Bathsheba's pregnant. Well, Uriah had this leave of absence. Uriah must be the father. So surely David now thinks he's covered his tracks. This is a foolproof plan until we read this in verse 9. We're going to read through a pretty lengthy section here, beginning in verse 9. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Now, Uriah doesn't refrain from sexual activity with his wife here because it was a moral issue during war, but rather this was a matter of cultural honor and respect. He's asking, how, how can I be given to pleasure when my comrades are out fighting and suffering in this war? Now, this is a remarkable and maybe unnoticed part of the story, a dark story that is undoubtedly filled with evil intentions and actions from the part of David, a story where we find an example of what not to do and how not to live, except in the example of Uriah, the Hittite. Now, maybe that term Hittite rings a bell. The Hittites were one of the enemies of Israel when they entered the promised land. And yet here this man with foreign roots, Uriah, is the honorable one. Meanwhile, the king of Israel, the leader of God's people, reveals his depravity. So the lines of who is in and who is out that we often draw we discover may be a bit blurry, right? Some of the assumptions we make based on those lines may be off. This probably doesn't come as a surprise, but still for us today, sometimes the designations we make are misinformed. I think about a very simple example, the notion of a Christian nation, which has been revealed time and time again to be a farce. Just because we label something as Christian doesn't mean, especially like a nation, it doesn't mean that the leaders or the inhabitants or the participants of that system are exemplifying Christian values. And so labels that we slap on people or different things aren't always all that helpful. I mean, David was the leader of God's people, but many times he couldn't be further from God's heart. 
I think as we consider this detail, it should probably lead to serious introspection for us. For, for those of us who identify as Christians, we ask ourselves, are we truly following Jesus and seeking to be like him? Or is this just a convenient label that we have decided to wear? Let's read the last couple of verses here. We're going to continue the story next week. So David senses that he is beginning to lose the one thing he was sure of, which is his ability to control the situation, which leads him down the path of violence. Verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. So we are going to continue reading the story next week, but we will leave it at that for today. David resorts to the most violent and absolute means of dealing with his problem, which is death for Uriah. This is a dark and troubling story, right? And yet I think in this troubling story, we still learn at least a few lessons from the negative example of David. First of all, I think a lesson that we can take away from this is that the moral life for us as Christians, living like Jesus requires diligence, right? Because temptations are going to be a constant battle. It requires diligence. It requires that we stay alert, keep our eyes open and to the possibilities of what it means to be like Jesus. Secondly, the lesson we learn, none of us are exempt from temptations like the ones David faced. None of us are exempt from temptations like lust or abuse of power or coercion. And so if we find ourselves in places of authority or leadership, we must use those positions and that influence for the good of others, for the well-being of others, and not for abuse or exploitation or using others as tools to get what we want. And then finally, just like Uriah in this story, the Hittite, the one with a foreign background. Just like he is the honorable example here, we are reminded that sometimes the ones who should be principled examples turn out to be just the opposite. So we can't always trust our initial assumptions. We are reminded, I think, here that everyone, regardless of nationality, regardless of origin, regardless of even religious identification, everyone is capable of beauty and principled living because we all bear God's image. And conversely, every one of us, regardless of category, is capable of incredible evil. It doesn't matter if we are wearing the label of Christian, it doesn't necessarily indicate that our hearts and our minds are in line with Christ. So we're going to transition into a time of sharing in the Eucharist, looking ahead to Jesus Christ, celebrating his life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection, which gives us life today. Over the next couple of weeks, my prayer for us is that we might learn from the sin of David 
that we might open our hearts to the correction of the Holy Spirit and that we might allow Jesus to lead us into his life. So would you stand this morning? I want to say a prayer for each of us as we approach the table. Amen. Lord Jesus, we see in David ourselves, we see our lust for beauty and sex, we see our lust for power and control, our tendency to use others for our own desires. We ask that you would forgive us. Enable us to stay alert to your spirit and your call on our lives. And in all we do, direct us to the fulfilling of your purpose through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Would you join us at the table this morning?